Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Slow news day, huh, guys? No, in all seriousness, our society is falling apart at the seams. And I'm going to give my opinion about it because that's what people with podcasts do. We give our opinions because we're all huge narcissists that need every single one of our thoughts broadcast to the world. So that's what's happening right now. In all seriousness, let me first say that obviously what happened to George Floyd is despicable. I think all of the cops should be charged with murder. I've seen countless videos of police this past weekend engaging in unjustifiable attacks against peaceful protesters. And I do think there's a militarization aspect of the police that needs to be reformed. I think that police brutality is a real phenomenon and there do need to be huge reformations. And obviously that's not me saying that there aren't tons of good police officers. Obviously there are, there are tons of good police officers and it, it doesn't make me feel good when people are just in a cavalier manner calling every single police officer a pig on social media. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that helps the national discourse, but but there is a problem, obviously. I saw this uh, meme on Facebook the other day from a Chris Rock comedy special, I believe. And Chris Rock is comparing um, people who fly planes to police officers. And he was just making the point that you can't have a few bad apples for pilots, right? Just a, a few pilots that just don't really know how to fly the plane. You know, there's just a few of them, right? It's not a systematic problem. Yeah, a few crashed a plane, but come on, what are you going to do? A few bad apples. And he's making the point that you can't have a few bad apples when it comes to pilots. And in the same way, you can't really have a few bad apples when it comes to policemen. And I do think there's a lot to that thought. Let me also say that I get that I don't get it. I get that I'm a white male who hasn't had to deal with police brutality or systematic injustice. But I don't think that means that I'm not allowed to give my opinion. Right? I see a lot of this floating around in the social media ethersphere as well. You know, if you're just a privileged white male, you have to sit down and shut up and you have no right to speak on what's going on. Well, no, I can offer my perspective on what's going on while at the same time acknowledging that I don't have the lived experience of systematic racism and therefore don't have as much insight into these issues as a, as a lot of other people who, you know, people who are on the ground right now protesting. So I get that. Now, don't worry, this isn't a preamble to me pivoting to classic conservative talking points. I'm not going to go to the, well, what about all the black-on-black crime that people don't pay any attention to? People don't riot over that. What about all the white people that are murdered by police each year? People don't riot because of that. Why are we just selectively focusing on these few instances and trying to create this racial narrative to further divide America, and it's all the Democrats, and it's all a big conspiracy theory, and whatever? Enough with the conservative rejoinder, right? I, th I think people are hurting, and I think it's undeniable that there is a serious problem of police brutality in this country that systematically targets African-Americans and minorities, right? So let's focus on the problem at hand. So there are a few points I want to make here in this unhinged rant. First, isn't it crazy how fast the coronavirus has just dropped out of the mainstream narrative? Do you remember, remember the coronavirus, guys? I'm old enough to remember when the coronavirus happened. I know it feels like ages ago at this point, but... It's not, people aren't even talking about it anymore as we see some of the biggest gatherings of people that I've ever seen in my life. 
And three weeks ago, the mainstream media was telling us how this is extremely dangerous. Now, I'm not saying that these gatherings are unjustified or that people shouldn't be protesting or any of that. I'm just saying no one's talking about it anymore. And it's kind of astonishing just how quick the narrative changes, right, in this 24-hour news cycle that we're all trapped in all the time. That's all. That's all I'm saying. It's just no one's even talking about it anymore. I've just I've heard a few rumblings about it in the mainstream media, but that's it. And on the media point, that brings me to my next point. The media fucking loves this. I think the mainstream media loves, they love the chaos. They, they, they won't admit that, obviously, but it's great for their ratings, right? They're, they're drawn towards the sensationalism. I think just as an industry, I'm not picking out particular people in the mainstream media. I'm just saying as an institution, we all know this. The media is drawn towards sensationalism. People don't report on all the good things that are happening, right? What's that saying? You never see a news reporter standing in the middle of a city and just reporting, everything's going well here. No one's breaking laws. It looks like civil society is operating as it should be. No, we focus on the sensationalized events, right? We don't focus on all the car crashes that happen, but whenever there's a plane crash that happens because it's more sensational and rare, we, we focus on it. So obviously the media at some level is just giddy with excitement that's going on. And it's not just because it's good for their ratings, right? Because it's good for their ratings. And, you know, <laughs> we saw some of the media get a taste of its own medicine the other day when protesters from Atlanta were just attacking the CNN um, headquarters in Atlanta. They were just completely defaced it. And I was watching that speech from Killer Mike, and he was talking about how, you know, karma is a mother because CNN spends so much time just spreading fear well, look what happens when that fear that you spread, the chickens have come home to roost, shows up on your doorstep, right? But it's not just the mainstream media. I think there's a lot of people in my personal orbit that seem to have this weird anarchist, anarchist fascination with what's going on. Um, just people, I don't know, I don't even know what it is. I think it's people are just kind of, they're excited that they're living through history. They're excited that history is getting started again, Right? Isn't it awesome, guys, that we're living through history? It's like a movie. I want to go to the protests just so I can tell my kids that I was there when it was happened. So it makes me, so I can be a part of something, a part of societal change. I just, I'm not saying everyone, obviously, right? There's, I'm, this is just a couple of people that I've seen in my orbit who kind of have this mindset. Obviously, the majority of the protesters have real grievances and they're not taking this lightly at all. But I just think this speaks to how a lot of people don't understand the distinction anymore between real life and fiction, because the two have become merged in this weird way, right? Nonfiction is fiction. Reality is parody. We have a reality TV star president. Everyone vlogs their lives as if it's a movie. So I think at some level, Maybe I'm just speaking about myself here, right? I don't even want to impugn this to anyone else, but this is definitely true of me. I've become numb to real violence because at some fundamental level, I don't even perceive it as real anymore, right? I see all this happening, unfolding on my television screen, and I forget that it's real. It seems like a movie. So at some level, almost, I'm almost unable to grapple with the seriousness of what's happening, and maybe that's because I've just seen too many movies in my life, so I'm just used to it. So when it happens in reality, I'm just not even, 
nothing can surprise me anymore, right? Because I've seen it all. I don't know. But I think it's just important to keep in mind that this isn't just some large cosplay game. This is reality. And you shouldn't necessarily be giddy that you're living through history if history is unfolding in a way that leads to the collapse of civilization. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying, making a point about the majority of the protesters. Maybe I'm just making a point about my own psychology. A few other points I wanted to make. There's, so first, there's been a lot of discussion about what the nature of these gatherings are. Are they protests? Are they riots? Does it matter how we characterize them? So I want to read a tweet on this from a professor of philosophy at Yale, Jason Stanley. Um, Stanley is the author of multiple books, including the book How Fascism Works, which I've read. And it's actually a very, I, thought, I found it to be a very good book. So he says, according to him, these gatherings are protests. He says, describing protests as riots is history's oldest counterinsurgency tactic. Chinese media represents the Hong Kong protests as riots. India's media represents the protest against the anti-Muslim changes to the citizenship laws as riots. It's easy to do. Focus on an unruly part of them and claim that's the real part. So according to him, people, some people have taken, have honed in on a couple of violent incidents that have transpired during these gatherings and have used that to paint the entire movement of what's going on as riots, when in actuality, the overwhelming majority of these gatherings are peaceful. And he says that this is a common tactic that the state will use to undermine peaceful protests, to paint them as dangerous and violent. So I take his point first and foremost, but I'm not sure that his analysis accurately applies to what's going on on the ground right now. It might very well apply to it, right? I just went on that huge rant about how the media sensationalizes things. So perhaps they are doing that now and they're just focusing on the most violent aspects of what's going on. And that's led people to mistakenly believe that these are mass riots when in reality, they're really mass peaceful protests with a couple of violent incidents. But I will say that, so I'm totally willing to accept that, but I will say that it seems like there is a non-negligible part of these gatherings that have devolved into violence and looting and destroying businesses Parts that I think can be legitimately classified as riot-like behavior. But I don't know whether it's proper to designate the entirety of what's going on as riots. So I'll just say that. The second thing is there's been a lot of talk about outside groups infiltrating the protests. People are saying it was originally just Black Lives Matter protesters, but now... Um, outside groups like Antifa have hijacked what's going on and are using the chaos for their own devious ends. Other people have talked about how white supremacists have hijacked a lot of the protests. And I really, again, don't know to what extent all of this is true, right? I'm pretty much, <laughs> I, I pretty much don't know anything. That's the lesson of this episode. I don't know anything. I'm swimming in a sea of fake news and misinformation and sensationalism. So maybe everything I'm saying is wrong. So don't fucking listen to what I'm saying. But I will say I have seen some videos that seem to suggest that there are members like Antifa that are using this to further their own ends. And I want to talk a little bit about the Antifa point because that's tr actually trending right now on Twitter. It's trending, guys. I have to talk about it. So Trump today came out with a tweet 
He says the United States of America will be designating Antifa as a terrorist organization. And a lot of people are talking about this right now, what this means. I want to make a few points here. So uh, let me actually first read. So here's a response to Trump's tweet by a Twitter handle. Her name's Kim Kelly. She's, she's verified, has the check mark. So she's a very, she's an important person in society. Um, so in response to this tweet by Trump, she says, the president of the United States has officially declared those who oppose fascism to be the enemy. It's impossible to understate the importance of this or what the re- repercussions will look like. The U.S. is a failed state led by a fascist dictatorship and is now declaring open season on all those determined to resist their genocidal agenda. Now is the time to choose sides. Get the fuck out of here. Are you fucking kidding me? Okay. Just because Antifa has the name anti-fascist in their name doesn't mean that they're on the right side of history fighting for righteous causes. To my understanding... Based on everything that I've seen, Antifa is a pretty anarchist group that wants to see nothing less than the wholesale destruction of society and capitalism. And they routinely engage in low-level violence. Now, okay, so Antifa's bad for the most part. Now, are they a terrorist organization? I don't know. Maybe it's too far to say that they're a domestic terrorist organization. I actually, in one of my podcasts um, on Tent Talks with a professor of political science at UConn, his name is Evan Perkoski. Um, the podcast is called Terrorism. If you want to go to Tent Talks, go to the terrorism episode. I talk about this explicitly with him, this question as to whether Antifa is a terrorist organization. And he, found what, and he made what I found to be an extremely compelling argument that Antifa actually doesn't qualify as a terrorist organization. And this man is, again, a political science professor at UConn. He specializes in terrorism and insurgency. So I'm going to take his opinion. So, no, I think Trump is wrong in designating Antifa as a terrorist organization, based upon what he said. And again, I don't remember the whole reasoning that he laid out, so just go listen to the episode. Again, Terrorism with Evan Perkoski on Tent Talks. So yeah, they might not be a terrorist organization, but that doesn't mean they're on the right side of history. That doesn't mean they're good, right? <laughs> so I see right there's a, right now on Twitter, I hashtag I am Antifa is trending. Everyone's jumping on the virtue signal that they're against fascism. They're for Antifa. It's like, come on, man. Come on. So I just want to make that point about Antifa. Two other things. I see a lot of people justifying the looting and the violence, right? The idea is, look, a lot of these activists, they've, excuse me, they've tried nonviolent tactics for a long time and none of it has worked, right? Colin Kaepernick peacefully knelt. We tried that. That didn't solve the issue. What other avenues do we have? Violence is the only answer at this point because all those nonviolent tactics that we tried, they didn't work. So what do you expect? And at some level, I understand that, right? And I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to pretend to understand the the grievances or the frustrations of the people that are protesting on the ground, right? And I understand that they're angry. I understand that they're upset. I understand that there are huge problems of police brutality. 
So I'm not, I'm not delegitimizing any of their righteous anger or frustration. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I think it is worth asking, it, does the violence actually make progress, right? There seems to be an assumption behind the line of argument that says, well, look, they tried nonviolence, now they have to go to violence in order to make change. But one a legitimate question is, will the violence actually be effective in implementing the political change that we want to see, specifically in the police system? And I don't know if it will. One worry that I had was it'll have the opposite effect, right? It'll um, lead a lot of people to be more pro-police in the aftermath of this as opposed to anti-police, right? They see all of the civil unrest and the chaos in the streets, and that'll actually make them more favorable towards the state as opposed to less favorable. I was a TA this semester for a social ethics class, and we studied MLK. I'm not gonna pretend to be a scholar on MLK or any of that, but I thought this was a worthwhile distinction that we talked about. MLK, he lays out these four steps of, um, four steps to civil disobedience, right? The first step is you collect facts to demonstrate injustice. Then you try to negotiate with the powers that be. And then you engage in what's called self-purification. That's when um, the leader, the, the lead protesters prepared the other protesters to endure suffering, right? They would like throw water in their face because they knew this is what the protesters would endure when they actually protested. So they had to prepare them to endure that. It's called self-purification. And then the final step is direct action and suffering. The protesters go out, they break a law in a nonviolent manner, and then they reap the consequences and they suffer, right? And that's where we have all the images from the 60s of um, African-American protesters getting attacked by dogs and all the rest of it, right? You know the images. And according to MLK, this produced what he called creative tension. That was the goal of civil disobedience, to produce creative tension. The creative tension exists within the minds of the American public, right? People, let's say in the 60s, just watching their TVs and seeing the palpable injustices being committed against these peaceful protesters, right? And the tension, the creative tension, the tension is between the idea that these people have of their country, right? They see their country as this just place that would never engage in injustices like this. So it's the tension is between that idea that they have of their country and the actual realities on the ground of their country. And it creates this tension. It creates a kind of cognitive dissonance within the minds of the American public. And when you have that cognitive dissonance, something has to give. They have to realize that, oh, that idealized version, that image of the country that I thought I lived in, that's not the reality. There actually are a ton of injustices in this country. And according to MLK, it's that kind of creative tension produced within the minds of the masses that would ultimately lead to societal change. And he juxtaposed what he called creative tension with violent tension, right? Violent tension being um, just violence against the authorities at B. And he says that that in general is not as efficacious as creative tension. So that was his perspective on how to actually make societal change. So I would say that if you're arguing based on that, then having these gatherings devolve in some circumstances into violent tension wouldn't actually produce the societal change that people want. And then look, I don't have the answers. I get it. 
the other avenues haven't worked. So what, what is there left to do? Like they've already tried creative tension, Cody. It didn't work. So I'm not saying I have the answers, but I don't know. I thought it was just relevant maybe to bring up that distinction between creative tension and violent tension. You know, he, he, another thing that stood out to me when I was a TA is he always emphasized how um, if you're the one that's suffering, not engaging in the violence, but is the one that's having the violence done to you, then you get the moral high ground. That's how you occupy the moral high ground within the minds of the masses, right? So divulging into violence is synonymous with giving up the moral high ground in some sense. And look, I get that there are different kinds of violence and there are different degrees of violence, right? There's probably a difference between setting a police car on fire with no one in it and burning down a small business, right? Some small business owner who has nothing to do with anything, who's just trying to make an honest living. Destroying his life, that doesn't seem to further anything. Maybe burning the police car, I don't even want to say I'm justifying burning the police car, but maybe that at least is more justified, at least more or less less unjustified than burning down a small business owner because in the case of the police car, at least you're targeting the powers that be, right? You're targeting the problem in some sense. Whereas with the small business owner, they have nothing to do with it. You're just destroying someone's life. You're just committing another injustice. So I don't know. Hopefully this whole rant won't get me canceled. We'll see what happens here. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to say is there's a lot of people Again, going on the theme of where is this heading? What's the best way to address the injustice and stuff moving forward? There's a lot of some of my, uh, let's say, more far left friends. They constantly are posting on their social medias about how we need to abolish the police system and the criminal justice justice system, right? Not not just defund the police system a bit, right? Not just uh, lessen their powers and and reform, but abolish. And this isn't this is a um, maybe this is just a reflection of the social circles that I run in, and this doesn't really represent a large number of people, but there's a significant amount of people in my social orbit that have this perspective. We need to abolish the police system and the criminal justice system. Just get rid of it. This does not make sense to me. How do I just, I guess I would just love someone to explain to me what is the end goal there, right? What are you replacing the police system with? Private security? What are you replacing the criminal system with? What happens when a serial killer murders five people and there's no criminal justice system? Where do they go? What happens when someone breaks into your apartment and there's no police force to enforce the law? Who deals with that? The community? Does the community deal with it? How do they deal with it? How does the person get punished? I, I'm just asking questions here because, because this seems to be, again, a notable, a notable amount of people that subscribe to this kind of ideology. And again, I'm on board with the idea that the police is way too militarized and that there are huge problems with our criminal justice system, that we need to move away from a retributive conception of justice and more towards a rehabilitation conception, right? Where we focus on rehabilitating criminals so they can have a good life and be upstanding members of society when they leave prison. And, you know, right now it seems like if you go to prison, you're just more likely to commit a crime when you come out. So I, I, I agree, based on what I know, that there are huge systemic problems with both the police force and the criminal justice system. I just don't know what it means when you say we need to abolish these things. 
And I would be happy for anyone to come on my pod and who has this perspective and try to persuade me on this. What is the end goal when you say you're going to abolish these things? Because I just don't understand it. So I think that's all the thoughts I had. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.